Well, good afternoon. My name is Tim Lynch, and I'm the director of Cato's Project on Criminal Justice. I also serve on the executive committee of the Criminal Law Practice Group of the Federalist Society, which is co-sponsoring our event today. And I want to thank uh, Dean Reuter and his colleagues at the Federalist Society for helping me to put this program together. Today we're going to tackle the subject of the federal sentencing guidelines, and we have a first-rate panel of experts that are going to give us the benefit of their experience and research. Before we get started, I do want to take just a minute or two to lay something of a foundation for our discussion. The first thing that you need to know is that the federal criminal justice system was never supposed to be the sprawling bureaucracy that it is now. The framers of the Constitution created a system where the administration of criminal justice would be handled, by and large, by state and local government. Unfortunately, federal officials in both parties have ignored the original design by federalizing offense, offenses that are already on the books at the state and local level. The Cato Institute and the Federalist Society have been very critical of this federalization of crime. And I should mention that the Society published this report, which is available outside. I hope you picked it up. It's entitled Measuring the Explosive Growth of Federal Crime Legislation. If you didn't pick it up, you can get it after the event, and this report can also be downloaded from the Federalist Society website. And the main conclusion of this report is that we now have more than 4,000 federal offenses on the books. And we have about 5,000 individuals that are processed through the federal system every single month. And that's where these federal rules of sentencing enter the picture. The second thing that you need to know and to be clear about is how the legal rules of sentencing have changed over the years. The sentencing guidelines that are in place now were the centerpiece of a law called the Sentencing Reform Act that was passed by the Congress in 1984. And then the guidelines actually went into effect in 1987. Now, in the world before 1987, the sentencing power was lodged in the judiciary, and judges had broad discretion when it came to the sentences that would be meted out. For example, an offense like armed robbery, a judge in the pre-1987 world, he could sentence somebody anywhere from straight probation all the way up until life imprisonment. He could sentence anywhere within that range. Now, the guidelines were designed to set tighter parameters around the judicial power. Now, some of our panelists are going to argue that the guidelines have basically accomplished their purpose, and we really only need marginal adjustments in the guidelines. But our other panelists will argue that the guidelines have transferred way too much power to prosecutors and that this has led to widespread mischief. According to Judge Young, the sentencing process in the federal system today is mostly theater and symbolism. We still see judges up on the bench with their gavels. They look at the defendant in the eye as they mete out the sentence. But the judge is basically reading from a script that has been already prepared by federal prosecutors. They've really already set what the sentencing range is going to be because of actions that they take behind the scenes. Now, the third thing that you need to know is about the recent action at the Supreme Court. Two months ago, the Supreme Court decided a case called Blakely versus Washington. Now, in a nutshell, the court ruled that the government violates the constitutional right to trial by jury when it tries to add additional prison time to a person's sentence based upon information that was never presented to the jury. Now, although that case only involved the sentencing rules for the state of Washington, the federal laws and procedures are so similar that the constitutionality of the federal guidelines are under a dark cloud. 
and the Department of Justice rushed to the Supreme Court a few weeks ago to urge the court to clear up this uncertainty. And the Supreme Court responded by agreeing to hear arguments on the matter as soon as it returns from its summer session in early October. Now, since the Blakely ruling came down in June, the discussion here in the Capitol has really been confined to one aspect of the guidelines, how the guidelines affect trial by jury. What we want to do today is discuss sentencing more generally, because this may be one of those rare opportunities where the lawmakers are going to just stop tinkering around with the guidelines and make some more fundamental changes. Okay, with that foundation, I'm going to turn this event over to our guest moderator, Tim O'Brien. Tim O'Brien has been reporting on developments in American constitutional law for more than 20 years. During the 1980s and 1990s, he covered the Supreme Court for ABC News. Following his tenure with ABC, Mr. O'Brien served as the principal Washington correspondent for CNN's Moneyline program. And his reporting has received the highest recognition in both the legal and journalism professions. I can't list all of his awards and accomplishments, but I do want to mention two of them. First, Mr. O'Brien's television documentaries on the criminal justice system received the American Bar Association's Silver Gavel Award, which is that organization's highest honor. Second, and more recently, Mr. O'Brien earned an Emmy from the National Academy of Arts and Sciences for his contributions to CNN's coverage of the September 11th terrorist attacks. I think he has earned so many awards over the course of his career because he really has a gift for taking a complex subject and distilling it down so that non-experts can understand it, and also because he's very fair-minded to people who are on both sides of controversial questions. Would you please welcome our guest moderator, Tim O'Brien. Thank you very much, Jim. The issue we take up today reminds me of um, the Supreme Court case where all nine justices get it wrong. It, it happens. Uh, not often, but to some extent. It's where all nine justices agree. The question is simple, and the answer is obvious, transparently clear. And five justices vote to affirm, and four just justices vote to reverse. Uh, the question that we consider today is not really all that difficult. Whether the judge has exclusive authority to decide whether aggravating circumstances will justify an enhanced sentence, or whether those aggravating circumstances are elements of the crime that must be charged in the indictment and proved beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury. Uh, last June, as uh, Tim was explaining, the Supreme Court in a case called Blakely versus Washington held that in the case of a man convicted of kidnapping his estranged wife, the judge could not increase the sentence from 53 months to 90 months because the judge had found certain aggravating circumstances that Blakely had acted with deliberate cruelty. Uh, five to four, the court held that the deliberate cruelty was neither admitted by Blakely nor found by a jury for the judge to rule on that on his own uh, violated the defendant's Sixth Amendment right to a jury trial. That ruling may have been a foregone conclusion in light of a Supreme Court decision four years earlier in Apprendi versus New Jersey. Uh, that case involved a racially motivated hate crime. Again, dividing five to four, the court held that it was not for the jury to decide whether the crime was motivated, that it was for the jury to decide whether the crime was motivated by race, not the judge. Now, Apprendi started a torrent of confusion and uncertainty about federal sentencing guidelines a huge decision, five to four, written by Justice Stevens. 
a personal note, a night before, the night before the uh, court rendered its decision in the Blakely case, I had the distinct privilege of taking Justice Scalia and his son Gene and my son Tim to Camden Yards to watch the Baltimore Orioles take on the New York Yankees. Uh, Justice Scalia, five rows behind the Orioles dugout, rooting wildly for the Yankees, uh, who won. And on the way home, Gene Scalia says, Dad, Tim was so nice to take us to the ball game. Why don't you tell him all the big decisions that are coming down? <laughs> well, we all got a big chuckle out of that. And uh, Justice Scalia asked, I teach a course in constitutional law, current issues. He says, well, what, what current cases are you taking up with your class? And I told him, uh, well, there's a important, couple of important freedom of religion cases, the, the uh, Pledge of Allegiance case, a couple of criminal cases. And there's this long pause, and Justice Scalia says, you know, there's a, a pretty good Apprenti case out there. And being the astute observer of the court that I am, I said, there is? <laughs> um, and that was the end of it until 12 hours later, I saw him announcing his decision to a, I think, a startled courtroom. Startled because he was unusually emphatic, at times uh, always firm, that's his style, but at times he seemed defensive. And when it came time for the dissents, I understood why. Uh, we heard uh, Justice O'Connor reading her dissent from the bench, saying that the practical consequences of today's decision may be disastrous. The effect of the decision, said O'Connor, will be greater judicial discretion and less uniformity in sentencing. Speaking for the four dissenters, she said the court's majority ignores the havoc it is about to wreak on trial courts around the country. We're going to begin this afternoon with one of the early defenders of sentencing guidelines. In fact, he's a great deal more than that. Jack Kress is, in fact, one of the pioneers of the concept. He's written more than 15 books and 60 articles on issues of justice and ethics. Uh, Jack helped develop sentencing guidelines in many of the states that now have them. He also worked with Congress and the Department of Justice in bringing the U.S. Sentencing Commission into existence. Uh, the format we're going to use this morning, each of our four panelists, all experts on this issue, will have up to 15 minutes. Uh, you can always opt to speak fewer minutes, uh, but once you go over that, uh, the, the red light comes on and all sorts of horrific things will happen. Uh, we'll have a second round of rebuttal, no more than three minutes. And then we're going to open it up to Q&A among the panelists uh, and, and you, the audience. Uh, so, Jack, uh, your clock is ticking. Thank you. Thanks very much, Tim. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Assistant Attorney General Bryant, Professor Luna, and this may displease the court, Judge Young. Uh, when Tim Lynch, the first Tim of Cato, invited me to speak here, he asked I not focus on Blakely so much, but rather offer background on sentencing guidelines. In a sense, I'm here to represent history. It's in fact personally quite frightening to realize, but it was 30 years ago now that two colleagues and I first came up with the concept of sentencing guidelines. I then went on to direct the research that led to America's first sentencing guidelines systems. Now, those of you too young to realize where guidelines came from should know that they did not originate with legislatures or commissions. They came from judges, from an actual analysis of what actual judges did, from the added input of first a small set of selected judges, and then later from close review of the work of literally hundreds of working trial court judges across the nation. In the interest of full disclosure, I should tell you that one of those judges I worked with 
whose practice early on informed my research, was in fact Sandra Day O'Connor, who then sat as a trial court judge on the Maricopa County Superior Court. You will not, therefore, be surprised to know that it is Justice O'Connor's dissent in Blakely that I consider to be the most informed, as well as the most prescient in its warnings about the havoc that Blakely would spawn. The judges I worked with viewed sentencing guidelines as a reform measure, and the idea caught on. The research arm of the Department of Justice sponsored our initial work. They called us a model project and gave us what then seemed like an awful lot of money to conduct our research. Soon, almost half the states adopted some version or variant of guidelines. I should stress here that, given that the vast bulk of criminal sentencing decisions occur at the state level, I've always viewed state sentencing guidelines as far more important than those in the federal system, and I've worked mostly with state courts. Nevertheless, I also aided bipartisan reform efforts at the federal level, first by helping Senator Ted Kennedy draft the Sentencing Reform Act when he chaired the Judiciary Committee, and later by working closely with Attorney General Ed Meese when he implemented that law and put together the United States Sentencing Commission. As an aside, and I'm surprised Tim didn't bring this up, I note the irony that the left and the right clearly joined forces a quarter century ago to put guidelines in place. And today in Blakely, I think anybody who looks at the division would agree that it's the left and right ends of the Supreme Court spectrum that have joined forces today in seeking to reverse sentencing reform. I have a shorthand reason for that that I could explain at length, but the shorthand is I think it's the uh, those who are the ideologues versus those who are pragmatic and care about the system in terms of how it actually works. Now, there were significant reasons why sentencing guidelines took hold as a reform two and three decades ago, and we must understand them. Otherwise, as the philosopher George Santayana warned, those who fail to remember the past are doomed to repeat it. In the rush to change, many are making the classic and cliched mistake of throwing out the baby with the bathwater, of confusing minor implementation flaws with major systemic problems that necessitate wholesale destruction. In my role as panel historian, therefore, let me take you back to the 1970s, a trip I fear will, but I hope won't, also be a trip back to the future. A cartoon of the era captures the problem. A judge is in his courtroom. On the far wall, a clock tells us the time is 9.55. Judge looks down at the defendant and says, I sentence you to, oh, five to 10. <laughs> Our cartoon reminds us of two distinct problems. First, the unfettered, unreviewed, and unchecked discretion of trial court judges. They could and did pull sentences out of the air, and possibly based, as Justice Breyer reminds us in his dissent in Blakely, on how good a breakfast they had eaten that morning. Equal justice under law was frankly a mockery when everyone in the courthouse knew and criminal research, criminological research proved that the very same defendant would get a wildly different sentence depending upon whether that defendant entered courtroom A or courtroom B. Prosecutors of the time proved adept at getting their important cases in front of the local tough judge who would have given our hypothetical cartoon defendant perhaps 20 years. Defense attorneys equally pulled out all the stops 
in seeking to move their cases before the local soft judge, who was just as likely to give our hypothetical defendant a sentence of probation. That, by the way, was how lawyers prepared for sentencing hearings in the pre-guidelines days. They judge shopped. The second major problem the cartoon speaks to was indeterminate sentencing, five to 10. In many states, including large ones, large ones like California, it could just as well have been one to 30. Or, as uh, Judge Young pointed out in his Green decision, when he started out, it could have been straight probation all the way to life imprisonment. With the actual time of incarceration decided not by the judge, but by a then powerful parole board. During the 1970s, a wave of research graphically demonstrated these serious systemic flaws. Racial disparities were truly existent, truly abhorrent, and especially obvious and odious. The press picked up on these studies, and the public grew disgusted. The revulsion with endemic sentencing disparities became universal. And then legislators reacted with the one solution they knew better than any other, statutory sentencing. The titles of the bills and the details varied. It was called mandatory minimum, flat time, presumptive sentencing, three strikes, or some such. But there was a common villain and a common cure. The problem was perceived as judicial and or paroling discretion. The solution abolished that discretion entirely. It was in this historical context that sentencing guidelines came in. Given today's climate, where so many judges publicly chafe at guidelines, you may be startled to know that judges were the strongest advocates of sentencing guidelines during the 1970s and 1980s. Now, I personally would love to believe that it was in the inherent brilliance of the sentencing guidelines concept, or at least my silver salesman's tongue that persuaded them, but I'm a realist. I know that many judges viewed sentencing guidelines as a compromise that would stave off the evils, and the evils they are, of statutorily imposed sentencing. The compromise of sentencing guidelines allowed for judicial discretion, but structured it, guided it, and controlled its abuses. Most of all, it allowed for a transparency in sentencing that had not hitherto been possible. When people have asked me about sentencing guidelines over the years, they have always focused on its role in curbing sentencing disparity. In the foreword that Senator Kennedy contributed to one of my books, he began with the following observation. One of the most glaring flaws in our current system of criminal justice can be traced to the arbitrariness of criminal sentencing procedures. During the past decade, study after study has demonstrated that unfettered judicial discretion results in increasing unfairness and uncertainty. The impact of such unfairness is devastating. Sentencing disparity and uncertainty affect society, the victims, and the offenders themselves. But to quote myself in the same book, Sentencing guidelines does much more than eliminate sentencing disparity, including racial disparity. Let me make clear at the outset my central purpose in writing this book. 
It is to open up a system too long shielded from public scrutiny. Sentencing guidelines research has demonstrated that society in general, and the courts in particular, have much to gain from such enhanced access to the sentencing decision-making process. Since perceived sentencing disparity has been the cutting edge applied by court critics, the ability of a sentencing guideline system to help reduce such disparity and thereby increase equity for criminal defendants has usually been viewed as its principal asset. Such a reduction of disparity is achievable and desirable, but at least to this writer, it is a derivative accomplishment of the system described in this book. It is my view that far more effective disparity reduction will occur as a result of increasing public awareness of what courts accomplish and what they actually do than from any application of even the most sophisticated statistical techniques. The courts have nothing to fear from public scrutiny and much to gain. I am today here re-emphasizing how important I believe transparency to be for reasons beyond those I submitted so long ago. Justice Breyer in his dissent in Blakely predicts that the post-Blakely lack of transparency will be through unobserved changes in charging decisions by prosecutors and greater use of what he calls the uncomfortable fact of plea bargaining. Justice O'Connor rightly fears the racial disparities that will demonstrably result from unstructured and unreviewed judicial discretion. To my mind, the central and almost universally ignored error in the reasoning of the Blakely majority was its implicit attack on the very transparency that sentencing guidelines have offered to the public. When you Google Blakely these days, you'll find the defense bar reacting with unbounded glee in support of the Blakely decision, believing it returns power to the jury and will set many defendants free. But they should read the decision more closely and be careful about what they wish for. In his majority opinion, Justice Scalia actually cites favorably the following proposition from Williams versus New York. In an indeterminate sentencing regime, the kind they hope will replace sentencing guidelines, the judge can rely on facts outside the trial record and sentence the defendant to death, giving no reasons at all. Is this future really what defense attorneys across America are applauding in Blakely? I deeply fear that those of goodwill seeking to cope with the fallout from Blakely, as well as the harsh critics of sentencing guidelines in recent practice, will ignore all principles of openness and return us once again to a closed and unaccountable system where sentencing inequities will flourish, but this time covertly and this time with no recourse for appeal. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. Splendid. Yeah. Professor Eric Luna has a long and distinguished career in the law, a summa cum laude graduate of USC. He received his JD with honors from Stanford, where he was editor of the Stanford Law Review. He's a former prosecutor in the San Diego District Attorney's Office, a lecturer at the University of Chicago Law School, a senior Fulbright scholar. He's taught in uh, numerous law schools around the country and indeed around the world. He is also author of um, A Cato Policy Analysis, Misguided Guidelines, A Critique of Federal Sentencing, and uh, from Eric, we can presume an opposing point of view. 
Thank you, Tim. Good afternoon, everyone. I'd like to begin by thanking Tim Lynch, the Cato Institute, and the Federalist Society for organizing today's event and inviting me to participate in this. I could just, I'm used to big classes like that, so can you hear me out there? Okay, good. As one legal scholar uh, noted shortly after the court's opinion, quote, Blakely is the biggest criminal justice decision not just of this past term, not just of this decade, not just of the Rehnquist Court, but perhaps in the history of the Supreme Court. Politicians and pundits have chimed in as well, using apocalyptic phrases like chaos, crisis, and siege to describe the case's aftermath for federal sentencing. Even Justice Sandra Day O'Connor described the decision as a number 10 earthquake as she derided her colleagues for the way the court had handled Blakely. Now, despite all the expressions of gloom and doom, of anxiety and dismay, and predictions of an impending collapse of the federal criminal justice system, in a recent op-ed, I offered the following refrain from a popular 1987 song by the rock band R.E.M. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Now, let me be clear. I'm not some type of legal, legal sadist who enjoys seeing federal judges, prosecutors, and de defense attorneys struggle with federal sentencing after Blakely. And I'm certainly not a supporter of the anguish that has been inflicted on crime victims, criminal defendants, and their families as their lives are held in abeyance until some judicial answer or legislative solution appears. Nor am I some type of legal rubberneck, driving past the ugly car crash that is Blakely, curious to see what happens, but otherwise content in my academic Volvo as I drive back to the safety of the old ivory tower. I recognize the pain that the Supreme Court's decision has uh, inflicted, has produced, and if I had my druthers, Blakely never would have happened. It never would have had to have happened. Instead, the Censoring Reform Act of 1984 would have been mindful of the design and structure of the U.S. Constitution. The guidelines forwarded by the U.S. Sentencing Commission and consecrated by Congress would have been real guidelines that were consistent with American civil liberties and respectful of the essential, irreplaceable role that trial judges do and play in crafting just sentences. And if all else failed, the U.S. Supreme Court would have ruled differently in Mistretta versus United States or any number of other cases. Or maybe Congress would have belatedly recognized either the inherent flaws of the current system and its hyper-deterministic approach to punishment or the practical injustices that were occurring on a regular basis in federal sentencing or at least our national politicians might have addressed the unconscionable effects of mandatory minimum sentences, particularly with regards to drug offenses. But none of this happened. And instead, a constitutionally flawed system, birthed by Congress, bred by the Sentencing Commission, and accepted by the Supreme Court, was allowed to develop into the teenage monster that it is today. As mentioned, Blakely was a Sixth Amendment jury trial case, premised on uh, the court's decision in Apprendi versus New Jersey from a few years back. But although the Sixth Amendment objections to the sentencing guidelines are quite strong, to me at least, the doctrinal basis for challenging the current regime is less important than the outcome I hope it produces, namely a wholesale reevaluation of the way our federal government has constructed its criminal process and in particular its approach to punishment. And for this reason, I can see hopeful prospects in the wake of Blakely. So what are my objections to the current regime of federal sentencing? 
By and large, they are the same concerns expressed in the Cato policy paper that Tim uh, mentioned, uh, as well as some of the issues raised by Chief Judge Young in his brilliant and courageous decision in U.S. versus Green from this past June, an opinion that I should note was issued a week before Blakely. In general, my concerns might be placed into three categories, structural objections, rights-based objections, and jurisprudential objections to the federal sentencing guidelines. An example from the first category is the delegation of lawmaking authority, specifically the power to set punishment, from Congress to the U.S. Sentencing Commission. To begin with, we shouldn't confuse the commission with the 9-11 Commission, or the Warren Commission, or a garden variety blue ribbon commission. For the most part, I have no qualms with these entities, which attempt to gather the best and brightest in a particular field, to examine a given issue or problem, provide guidance for lawmakers and administrators. As a pointy-headed academic, I appreciate that these assembled bodies are one of the few ways that scholars can actually affect, in a, in a public and, and positive way, policy judgments that will be made by government. But the U.S. Sentencing Commission is no commission at all, but instead a government agency, or as Justice Scalia described it in his scathing dissent in Mistretta, a sort of junior varsity congress, effectively empowered to make law by prescribing the punishment for criminal defendants. Among other things, this new branch, as Scalia called it, sets the range of punishment, defines when probation is permissible, if at all, regulates whether criminal fines should be levied and what amounts, and determines which characteristics of offenses and offenders are relevant in sensing. These decisions aren't technical or procedural, but are instead substantive value judgments that the Constitution lodged in the political branches. As a matter of constitutional text, as well as structure, quote, all legislative power shall be vested in Congress, meaning that only the national legislative body can create federal law. And yet under the Sentencing Act, the Commission's dictates become law, binding on individual parties and the federal courts absent presidentially approved congressional legislation to the contrary. What's more, the creation of the Commission and its guidelines has blurred the line of accountability for any particular sentence or for punishment policy in general. Congress established an administrative agency that is supposedly, and I say supposedly, embedded in the judicial branch, whose members are chosen by the President and approved by Congress to serve a specified term. But unlike other agencies, the Commission is largely freed from statutory constraints typically placed on administrative bodies, including regularized procedures for considering new rules, a commitment to open meetings and discussions, detailed explanation for the issuance of these new rules, and review by the courts under an arbitrary and capricious standard. As a result, the Commission can act without defending its decisions or its decision-making process. Moreover, the Commission lacks a direct line of accountability to any of the three branches and remains largely anonymous to the general public. At least under the prior thoroughly political regime, the citizenry knew whom to blame for any grievances with federal punishment, Congress for enacting the relevant legislation, and the President for signing it into law. But with the Commission and its guidelines, no politically accountable entity can be held responsible for the federal sentencing law. Now let me make clear, I hold no ill will towards the U.S. Sentencing Commissioners themselves. To a person, these are fine men and women with distinguished records of service who undoubtedly have the best of intentions for the federal criminal justice system. But in my opinion, the Commission itself is inconsistent with the structural design of the Constitution of divided tripartite powers and political accountability for all policy judgments. My second set of concerns relate to American civil liberties and how the guidelines have tinkered with basic concepts of due process and criminal justice. 
For instance, the guidelines real offense sentencing provisions often require federal courts to mete out punishment, not for the specific criminal conviction, but for conduct that may have been committed beyond the official charges. Such relevant conduct, as it is called, need only be proven by a preponderance of the evidence instead of the constitutionally based standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. As a result, defendants sometimes face enhanced punishment for acts that were never formally prosecuted, or even worse, crimes for which the defendant was actually acquitted, leading critics to argue that the convictions and acquittals in the federal criminal justice system under the federal scheme are now irrelevant. Now, admittedly, the Blakely decision undermines the viability of this practice, as relevant conduct that is not admitted by the defendant or proven to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt would seem to be an invalid basis for enhanced punishment. If Blakely brings to an end the fast and loose procedures for relevant conduct, with prosecutors bound to some semblance of truth in charging, and reaffirming that a not guilty verdict means precisely that, the Supreme Court's decision will have eliminated a highly dubious practice, if nothing else. But the, the enhancement issue, whether styled as a violation of the Sixth Amendment right to jury trial or the Fifth Amendment due process right, is not the only aspect of federal guidelines that is obnoxious to constitutional rights. Among other things, the combination of mandatory minimum sentences, the practice of prosecutorial stacking of charges, or, and the exceptionally limited ability of judges to depart downward from the prescribed punishment under the guidelines, has the potential, if not, and in fact, the reality of producing federal sentences that would seem to violate the Eighth Amendment's ban on cruel and unusual punishment. Take, for example, United States versus Angelos, a case currently pending in my home state of Utah. In Angelos, the defendant faces a minimum sentence of 63 years to life in prison, effectively a life sentence, for carrying a firearm while selling marijuana, but never using or displaying the weapon, and for having firearms in his home, which were found when the defendant consented to a house search. In requesting briefing on the issue, Federal District Court Judge and my, my colleague, Judge Paul Cassell, noted that among others, an aircraft hijacker would serve a prison term of no more than 24 and a half years. A second degree murderer would serve a prison term of no more than 14 years. And a rapist would serve a prison term of no more than seven years. But this 24 year old low level drug criminal would likely spend the rest of his life in prison. Judge Cassell also asked the parties to discuss whether the prison term in light of comparative sentences might violate the Equal Protection Clause as producing an irrational classification. While a recently submitted amicus brief in Angelos, signed by, among others, former Attorney General Nicholas Katzenbach and a series of former federal judges, suggested that the punishment also violates due process and the separation of powers principle. Now, for those of you who might dismiss this case as an outlier, it is true that federal correctional facilities do have their fair share of mobsters, drug kingpins, white-collar scoundrels, and most recently, anti-American terrorists. But by and large, federal penitentiaries are filled with relatively minor offenders, most involved in drug crime, whose biggest mistake, other than committing the offense in question, was refusing to play ball with prosecutors, or because they simply didn't know anyone to rat out. Which leads me to my third set of concerns, the jurisprudential distortions that the guidelines regime have produced. As Angelos and countless other cases demonstrate, the real sentencers under the federal guidelines are prosecutors, not judges. Let me briefly explain why this is so. Under the so-called 25% rule, the highest potential sentence for an offender must be no more than six months or 25% of the lowest potential sentence, typically resulting in a very tight range of punishment and thus relatively little discretion for a federal district court. In turn, trial judges have few grounds to depart from a given sentence. 
But prosecutors have the unilateral authority to seek downward departures based on something called substantial assistance from the defendant. By limiting the power of judges at the final stage of the criminal process, the guidelines necessarily expand the decision-making authority of prosecutors at earlier points in the process, either through their decisions in charging or in offering substantial assistance departures to those who cooperate. Obscenely long sentences under the guidelines, either through mandatory minimums or the ability to stack charges, have, a, have an immensely intimidating effect on those accused of crime. Federal prosecutors can then offer a deal that the defendant literally cannot refuse, unless he is willing to risk a le lengthy prison term by standing trial. And should the defendant be convicted, as most offenders are, his sentence under the guidelines is preordained by the prosecutor's charging decision. In this way, law enforcers and not trial courts have become the real sentencers in the federal system. Now, of course, federal prosecutors are not dark-hearted barbarians intentionally seeking unreasonable sentences while horribly deforming the constitutional design. These are good men and women who honorably serve the executive branch of government. But let's not kid ourselves. Government lawyers, like all practicing attorneys, are partisans in the criminal justice system. Although charged to do justice, they often seem preoccupied in obtaining verdicts in a profession where job performance is typically evaluated by one's conviction rate. This is not a slight against assistant U.S. attorneys, but it's perhaps the unavoidable consequence of the prevailing battle model of criminal justice. Sometimes the adversarial nature of their position prevents prosecutors from neutrally evaluating the evidence and assessing the defendant as an individual rather than a means to an end, let alone considering the larger distortions occurring to American constitutionalism. In the words of Justice Anthony Kennedy in his speech to the American Bar Association in 19, uh, excuse me, 2003, quote, a transfer of sentencing discretion from a judge to an assistant U.S. attorney, not often much older than the defendant, is misguided. The policy gives the discretion, the decision, to an assistant prosecutor not trained in the exercise of discretion and takes discretion from the trial judge, who is the one actor in the system most experienced with exercising discretion in a transparent, open, and reasoned way. And that, to me, is the greatest jurisprudential flaw of them all. Federal judges, the most qualified and trustworthy individuals in the national government, have been rendered impotent at sentencing under the guidelines. Now, I know I'm running out of time, um, although it would be appropriate to discuss, discuss some of the possible solutions to Blakely's aftermath. Um, a number of stopgap ideas have been floated, most of them akin to rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. And maybe we can talk about these ideas and my own thoughts on the future of sentencing during the Q&A session. But let me conclude with my answer to the question posed in the title of today's forum. Should the federal guidelines be saved or scrapped? Well, as you might think and suspect for the reasons mentioned and many, many more, I think it's high time to scrap the guidelines and begin again. Hopefully, Blakely will provide the impetus to do precisely that. Thank you very much. Thank you, Eric. Uh, Next, we're going to hear from Dan Bryant, who holds one of the most prestigious and important jobs in the law, Assistant Attorney General for Legal Policy, a post held by Chief Justice William Rehnquist before he joined the Supreme Court. Dan is responsible for planning, developing, and coordinating uh, major legal policy initiatives of the Department of Justice and the administration. Uh, prior to his current post, Dan served as counsel to the Attorney General, Assistant Attorney General for Legislative Affairs, and before that, as Majority Chief Counsel of the House Judiciary Committee's Crime Subcommittee. Uh, Dan, welcome, and we're delighted to have you with us. 
Thank you, Tim. Uh, is the microphone working or should I project? It is working. Great. Um, I arrived home last night at midnight from Sandbridge, Virginia, wonderful spot just north of the North Carolina coast. Uh, there, my wife and I had a week of chasing around our uh, three wonderful little ankle biters, the youngest one being uh, a year and a half, who has a fondness for eating sand, and a variety of violations and infractions and indiscretions were perpetrated uh, one upon the other over the course of the week. And it seemed most appropriate that I would segue this morning into a discussion of the question of sentencing guidelines. Oh, for some sentencing guidelines over the last week. <laughs> uh, we'll see how much I cover up front, and then we'll get into the rest, hopefully, in Q&A. I wanted to touch on three uh, basic uh, areas in my comments this morning. First, the Supreme Court. Uh, and that is to touch on what the department will be arguing, what positions will be advancing uh, as we proceed, uh, and, and what we hope the court will take into account uh, as we do so. Secondly, uh, to focus briefly on Congress uh, and how it might go in any number of a different directions uh, in the months ahead. Uh, some uh, we think would be more prudent uh, than others. Uh, finally, to touch on the policy uh, behind the sentencing guidelines. We think the guidelines have promoted uh, the interests of fairness uh, and public safety, and we think it would be a serious mistake uh, to reject them. First, the Supreme Court uh, and how the department will be proceeding uh, in, the, uh, in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, we think it's necessary to look first uh, to Apprendi. Uh, Blakely's holding is simply an application of the rule announced in Apprendi versus New Jersey, the 2000 case. Uh, Apprendi's rule, in essence, was uh, that a judge is not authorized to determine the facts that subject a defendant to a punishment beyond the statutory maximum sentence for the offense of conviction. Uh, this Apprendi rule was premised on the view that such a general rule would effectively preempt the jury by creating a more serious crime with a more serious punishment of which a defendant could be convicted without a jury finding of guilt on the elements uh, of this more serious offense. Over the four years since Apprendi, no court has found the guidelines unconstitutional. Nothing in the sentencing guidelines violates uh, this principle, since a defendant is subject to the entire range of punishment by virtue, that is from the statutory maximum on down, by virtue of the jury's verdict without any additional fact-finding on the judge's part. Uh, this was not the case in Blakely. Uh, we will further be uh, focusing, uh, as we uh, present arguments to the court, on the guidelines themselves uh, and uh, how congressional intent uh, clearly indicates that the guidelines were not intended to be statutes. Congress studied for many years uh, the question of overhauling sentencing um, in light of unwarranted disparities that were occurring with unguided uh, judicial discretion. The problem was that similarly situated defendants were not being treated similarly, and differences were due to race, geographic location, ethnicity, gender, and a variety of other unacceptable uh, and arbitrary factors. In response, Congress did not choose a statutory scheme. They formed an independent agency, the U.S. Sentencing Commission, within the judicial branch. The idea was to replace individual and arbitrary judicial discretion with the exercise of collective discretion arrived at by the commission and through the application of the guidelines. 
The commission was directed by Congress to study a wide variety of factors to be taken into account by sentencing judges and to include such factors in that regime. The constitutionality of the design of the guidelines was challenged, as we all know, uh, and upheld in 1989 in the case Mistretta versus the United States. Uh, the Supreme Court at that time did not specifically consider the Sixth Amendment concerns, but an application of the Sixth Amendment, we believe, should lead to the same result. Another important point, that the entire structure and function of the guidelines reveal that the guidelines are not statutes. Consider the structure. They are categorically different than the state regimes assessed by the Supreme Court in Apprendi and other cases such as Ring and Blakely. In each of those state statutes, the state legislatures passed statutes that operated in a building block fashion to raise sentences above certain statutory lines. For example, in Blakely, the defendant's punishment was within one statutory range and the judicial fact finding raised it to another statutory range. Unlike Apprendi, Blakely, and Ring, the guidelines never increase a sentence above the statutory range. Under the guidelines, post-verdict or guilty plea judicial fact-finding only served to reduce the punishment from a statutory high. In other words, sentences under the guidelines judicial fact-finding is always less than the statutory maximum. Consider the function of the guidelines. They are complex, 500 pages long with, with an infinite, seemingly infinite number of permutations. Um, it doesn't sort of walk or talk like a statute. There's no presumptive range contained within the guidelines for any given crime. Rather, it's driven by the crime itself, by the criminal history record. They reflect an integrated design that operate nothing like the much simpler statutory framework. They create a methodology of design that's markedly different than a statute. And for Sixth Amendment purposes, the jury verdict triggers the entire statutory range and the guidelines and the judicial fact-finding operate within the entire range. Never in any instance does the judicial fact-finding raise the statutory maximum. Another important point that we will be focusing on, and that is case law reflecting uh, the same result. No court has ever considered the guidelines to be statutes. The Supreme Court has quite recently affirmed sentences that involved the very same type of judicial fact-finding contained within an application of a guideline system. For example, the Supreme Court in Edwards versus the United States concluded that a judge may ascertain using a preponderance standard the type and amount of drugs involved and impose a sentence based on uh, the conclusion as long as the sentence does not exceed the statutory maximum. That was a 1998 decision. Uh, United States versus Dunnigan and a number of others speak to the same uh, principle. These cases, while not explicitly considering the Sixth Amendment, held that a court can constitutionally raise a guideline range above a base offense level, so long as the sentence does not exceed the statutory maximum. In other words, there's never been any Sixth Amendment significance attached to a base offense level within the guidelines. And Blakely certainly does not hold that that conclusion is inevitable. There are a variety of other decisions that comport with uh, the conclusions that no constitutional concerns attach to the base offense level. Uh, I would briefly note um, 
how things are proceeding in the circuits. This is obviously relevant to the department as it proceeds before the Supreme Court. Uh, at current count, four circuits uh, have held that Blakely does not apply to the guidelines. These would include the Second Circuit, the Fourth, the Fifth, and the Sixth. Uh, and happily, in our view, uh, the Sixth Circuit this morning affirmed uh, the district court's view uh, in an en banc decision, uh, again handed down this morning. Two circuits uh, have thus far held uh, that Blakely does apply to the guidelines. Those are the Seventh uh, and the Ninth. So still uh, not determined. We have the First Circuit, the Third Circuit, the Tenth, and the Eleventh. Briefly, Congress. Uh, we think that any legislative proposal that is advanced by Congress needs to be true to the underlying principles of the Sentencing Reform Act of 1984. Those sentences, th those principles uh, included, first, that sentences needed to be appropriately punitive. There's a kind of moral imperative, if you will, that a sentence be an actual punishment. Secondly, um, sentences need to reflect the interest of, of deterrence and in incapacitation. Thirdly, uh, a sentencing regime needs to limit judicial discretion and pr provide consistency, certainty, and fairness. Uh, we think that of the variety of options that we have uh, heard of to date, that there is uh, one proposal in particular advanced by uh, Professor Bowman that seems most to um, embody these key principles behind the Sentencing uh, Reform Act. Uh, the Bowman uh, uh, proposal is often called the lift the lid proposal. It would, uh, in effect, raise the guideline maximum penalty to the statutory maximum penalty. This would satisfy the, fund the fundamental principle of sentencing reform. It would work the least amount of change in the current system. And we do think that continuity with the, the current system is itself a value rather than uncertainty, disparity, and potential chaos that would result. Indeed, we saw immediately after the Blakely decision was handed down the kind of radical disparities already reappearing that the underlying 84 Sentencing Reform Act uh, was designed to respond to. Uh, while, on it, while on its face, uh, this so-called Bowman proposal could promote a lack of consistency because of a wide range of sentencing above the guidelines minimum, that is, judges could sentence defendants above the top of the guidelines range without the formality of an upward departure. The facts show that this concern is not realistic, as the vast majority of sentences under the current system are at the precise guidelines minimum. Uh, and the current rate of upward departures uh, is only 0.6%. Uh, I've also heard the concern that this, this Bowman uh, approach would depend on the continued vitality of Harris versus the United States, which permits a judge to find facts needed to determine minimum sentences. Uh, it's true that Harris was a four-justice plurality opinion with chief, the Chief Justice and Justices O'Connor, Kennedy, and Scalia joining uh, to say that the facts that increase a defendant's mandatory minimum sentence are not subject to the rule of Apprendi. There are a couple of important factors uh, to bear in mind. First, Scalia joined the four-justice uh, plurality in Harris. Second, in Blakely, Scalia specifically distinguished uh, Harris by stating those cases involved sentencing schemes that imposed a statutory minimum if a judge found a particular fact. And thirdly, Justice Breyer, uh, an Apprendi dissenter, concurred in Harris to the extent that he declined to extend Apprendi. 
because Breyer has consistently declined to extend the logic of Apprendi, there's reason to believe he would continue to do so and vote to reaffirm Harris. Uh, thirdly and finally, <clears throat> uh, I wanted to touch on uh, the policy uh, concerns that the department is, uh, is, is holding near and dear as it considers the question of the uh, future of the sentencing guidelines. And our preeminent concerns here have to do with fairness, uh, justice, and uh, the interest of crime victims. Uh, we do believe that being fair, consistent, measured, and yes, tough on crime is being smart on crime. Our sentencing policies are saving lives and preventing crimes. We do not believe that now is the time to go back to the bad old days when violent crime was so extraordinarily high. Uh, we are right now, in 2004, experiencing a 30-year low in violent crime. Nearly 27.5 million violent crimes were not committed in the last decade because of this reduction in crime. The United States has already experimented with early release for parole, rehabilitation in place of incarceration, and increased judicial discretion. Uh, these policies, which were fashionable during much of the high crime periods of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, failed to promote, failed to prevent crime and promote uh, safer communities. The bottom line for the department is we think the federal sentencing guidelines are a vital component of continuing uh, the success that we've been experiencing in driving down the violent crime rate. That means fewer uh, parents and children, fewer families uh, torn apart by violent crime. Thank you. Thank you. Record you. Yeah. For over. Not 
an expert on Browns seems to me beyond the pale. This is an extraordinary public policy issue. I'll stay away from the policy. I am a sitting judge. I view this much like, and, and I want to be absolutely straight with you, I view this much like continuing legal education, and I am on the lecture circuit for continuing legal education. After Blakely came down, I sat down with all the U.S. attorneys in Massachusetts, and I said, you want to know what I think it means? Here's what I think it means. And I made a caveat, and I make it here. And the caveat is simple. I reserve the right to do exactly the opposite of anything I tell you today in the crucible of actual litigation when I'm wearing the robe and declaring the values either of the Constitution or as mandated by the Congress. Because so long as the Congress stays within the Constitution, what a judge is is a teacher. They teach the congressionally determined values in particular cases. That's what judges do. Now, <coughs> following the usual format, I'll have three areas to discuss. First, I want to talk a little bit about the guidelines, so-called guidelines. Then I want to talk a little bit about Blakely, though the discussion about Blakely has been on point and, and reflective. And then I want to leap off and tell you truly from the bottom of my heart why this all matters. First, let's talk about the so-called guidelines. Um, <coughs> we've, we've heard the history. I, I don't, I, I do differ with this mass of supposed evidence about judicial misconduct, but I understand the largely, by large majorities, the bipartisan uh, majority that passed the Sentencing Reform Act of 1984, and theoretically, and I'll, I'll talk personally and I'll talk accurately. I had no objection to guidelines. In fact, I was appointed from the state to the federal court in 1984, came before the Senate Judiciary Committee, and that's what Senator Thurmond asked me. That's one of the, I remember them well. He said, how do you feel about sentencing guidelines? And I wasn't abasing myself. I spoke in favor of guidelines. Now, let's look at some actual facts here. 97% of those people who are indicted in federal court 
plead guilty. Approximately 3% go to trial. Of those 3% who go to trial, approximately 20% to 25, but it's down from 25, but almost one in four are acquitted. This is not an indictment of the system. Any system as large as our system is with people acting in complete good faith is going to have some charges that fail of proof. And the system is designed to prevent a guilt, a, an innocent person from going to jail. The default position is 10 guilty people go free before one innocent person goes to jail. That's bedrock. That's our country. And so the fact that there's an acquittal rate that is about as high as it's ever been should not be used against the Department of Justice or their skilled attorneys because most people plead guilty and the department leverages its uh, resources and of course they're always before Congress saying they need more resources and probably they do so does the judiciary but 97 percent plead if all of those people went to trial the whole system would go tilt we don't have the assistance we don't have the courts we don't have the courtrooms so I'm not here to bleat against plea bargaining plea bargaining is what the system is all about folks I am here to tell you that the person who insists upon their right as guaranteed in the Constitution to trial by jury gets, these are the Department of Justice's own statistics, two and a half times longer in prison than the one who rolls over. And the disparity between those who flip and cooperate with the government and go to trial in the District of Massachusetts is five times, 500% if you ask for what the Constitution guarantees you. Facts. Now, very quickly, I, I, I do have some problems with the federal sentencing procedures. They are not problems so much of policy, I am offended by sophistry. I am offended by saying one thing and doing another, whether it's done by the department in its reports to Congress, whether it's done by the Congress in justifying its legislation, or whether it's done by the judiciary in justifying whatever it is that we do. Here are a few things. I've already, I hope, demonstrated we don't have a trial system in our federal courts. We have a sentencing bargaining system with a few trials on the side. Um, we, these aren't guidelines. They're not. They are a series of case. Maybe that was the idea. It was certainly what I testified if, on my brief moment before the Senate uh, uh, what I thought we were getting into they're not guidelines at all they're case discrete minimum mandatory sentences make no mistake they are look at the legislative history of this popularly known Feeney amendment 
squeezed through by the department as piggybacking on the, in fact, very wise Amber Alert legislation, you get a, a discount for acceptance of responsibility. Of course, the person who says, I'll plead guilty, I did it. Come on. That's the discount for saving the government trial. And you know what? The department's major problem is it's not enough. All these other things, charge bargaining, substantial assistance, and then the illegal fact bargaining, swallowing the guns, swallowing the drugs, are all to move the business. That's the fact, to move the business, because acceptance of responsibility is two levels, and if it's a serious crime, three levels. If you expanded that, there would be... The, and if it was truly acceptance of responsibility... You could go to trial, and then after they convicted you, say, yeah, you know, I really did it, and yeah, oh, gee, uh, you know, and get it. You can't. Acceptance of responsibility is not the truth. It's the discount, and it isn't big enough. Also, this whole idea of sentencing hearings and proof by a fair preponderance of the evidence before judges. <laughs> Look, under the federal rules of evidence, the rules of evidence do not apply to sentencing hearings. Therefore, facts are not established. All sorts of third and fourth level hearsay can come before the court in a sentencing hearing. So no facts are established. Fair preponderance is just who has the better of the mishmash. And, of course, it unconstantly, well, no court is so held, it can be argued that it unconstantly shifts to the defendant to come up with something. The government has their whole file. The defendant can deny it, but the defendant is suspect because, of course, he's accused and he's pleading guilty or he's been found guilty. That's the context. So, you're making these determinations, which are the determinations, that sentence people without any evidence, without any facts, and on, and the other speakers have spoken, on this theory of real offense conduct, which may not be the offense that's charged. It may be some other offense that they never charge. Oh, but they tell you he's the kingpin. And then you're supposed to go beyond. And, that, and, and don't think that that takes you above the, the so-called guidelines. It ratchets it up. And while <coughs> I think uh, the Assistant Attorney General did stick uh, very uh, carefully to their position, and it is a position which is worthy of respect, don't think that uh, the... Uh, statutory maximum as found in the uh, actual code uh, is really the maximum because what they do is charge two or three counts. They charge three counts of low level in my decision in green. It's shameless to cite yourself, but I will. In green, they had two low level uh, crack uh, convictions, street uh, sales, and they had destruction of government property. The guy found the wire that the informant was uh, wearing, ripped it off him and smashed it. That was the destruction of government property. He was guilty of those things. They also, they charged him with conspiracy, but they lost on that. And, and in fact, uh, even 
by the so-called fair preponderance. I didn't think they had that. Ah, but in his garage, they said they had found another 45 grams of crack. They said it. He denied it, denied it was his. No hearing on that. And then if you add, because the so-called guidelines tell you to do that, it isn't the statutory maximums of what he was convicted. It's add all the so-called statutory maximums, and the guidelines are up there. I'm simply asking for honesty. Now, Blakely, if you have a chance to tell Justice Scalia from me, Blakely is probably his best decision. And, and, and I will tell you, and the reason, the reason is not a policy reason. This, this idea that the sky is falling, uh, I, I don't go along with that. Blakely simply does this. It places the jury of the American people between the accused offender and the prison door. And you know, as Mr. Kress says, I, I, I'm not hesitant to say it. I think it is. Look at the division. It's the division between the ideologues and those who are practical. Thank God for the ideologues in a, in a constitution which says that we will have trial by jury. And remember, it says it not only in the Sixth Amendment, it says it in the very structure of our government. Article 3, Section 2, Clause 3, the trial of all crimes except in the cases of impeachment shall be by jury. That was when they framed the Constitution itself, before we had the Bill of Rights. It, it's always helpful to read a written Constitution. It means something. Now, this business that the sky will fall, that's not happening in our courts. My, my, the best line is that of my courtroom deputy clerk. She says, this is the summer of superseding indictments. You bet your life it is. They're out there now. They'll plead the gun. They'll plead the amount of drugs. They'll plead the loss. All of those things, those rhetorical questions in Justice Breyer, and I have enormous respect for Justice Breyer. He's one of the two justices that I know personally, and he is a magnificent and thoughtful individual. But I wish I could talk to him. I've read those rhetorical questions. Juries can handle all that. What? Question whether you're an organizer or manager of over five people. These are the same juries that we ask to decide antitrust. Asked to decide whether recombinant DNA formulae violate someone's patent. This is the stuff I do every day. Juries can do it. They are the most vital of expression of direct democracy that exists in the United States today. They perform in our structure of government a check not only on the judiciary, as they should, but also on the other two branches of government that they not encroach upon the judicial function. And the jury system is dying today. It's dying faster in the federal courts than it is in the state courts, 97% plead. It's dying faster on the criminal side than it is on the state side. But it's dying. And Blakely, the way I frame it, is Gideon v. Wainwright for American juries. All it says is, 
if you want to turn an offender over to the unfettered discretion of a United States district judge, prove those elements that turns the person over to the unfettered discretion of the judge. And, and as Mr. Bryant says, he says under this Bauman proposal, we'll just take the top of the guidelines, bump them up to the uh, Title uh, <coughs> 18 statutory maximum, and then those are the elements of the offense. If Congress wants to do that, I don't speak to it. I suggest there'll be quite a debate about it this time, as there should, but I don't speak to it. Now, um, why really does it matter? Uh, and here I'm going to launch right off, but I believe it passionately. Uh, the whole moral force of the judiciary as a third branch below the Supreme Court rests upon the American jury. Make no mistake about it. And it's under enormous attack today. It's under attack from a variety of different uh, positions. Um, there is a, a continual drumbeat uh, that juries can't do this, that juries can't do that. In fact, juries are the guarantor. That's why I mentioned the structural position of the jury in Article 3. And without juries, without juries, how long do you think the 663 United States district judges would retain the power to interpret the Constitution that has been part of our heritage. District of Massachusetts gave it to you, by the way, in a case called the William, uh, a, a case which Charles Warren said is the most important case decided, constitutional law case ever decided by a court other than the Supreme Court. And I'll end with this. Think, and this has nothing to do with sentencing. But I want to end by telling you why the Constitution is alive today in our hearts and minds and why every generation creates our constitutional laws. Not so long ago, the Congress, by respectable majorities, passed both houses and the Senate and the President signed the Partial Birth Abortion Act. And that same day, two United States District Court judges said, wait a second, that's unconstitutional. We'll suspend that until we all sort it out. All right? Now I'll go to the other end of uh, political hot-button issues of the day. A district judge in Texas said, gee, you know, Article 2 means what it says. You have an individual right to bear arms. State can regulate it, but that's one of the individual rights. And I come from Massachusetts. I remember hearing that and saying, huh, well, you know, 663 of us, one is a zany, and surely the Court of Appeals will quickly take care of them. Uh, come to find out, in a brilliant opinion by the Fifth Circuit, not yet resolved by the Supreme Court, they say the district judge is right. My friends, the Constitution, the actual Constitution, because nothing is ever finally settled under the Constitution. You know that on all the major issues of the day. The Constitution is both alive and as close to you as the nearest United States District Court. That does not have to be the way it works. Most countries have one constitutional court. 
in the capital city. The rest of the judiciary simply applies the laws as passed by the uh, legislature or parliament and leaves all constitutional matters to the constitutional court. Great democracies do that. Germany, Japan, Italy, France, they're all democracies. They're real democracies. They're not American democracy. Upon the jury system rests American democracy. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Judge. Uh, I think I detect a difference of opinion here. Uh, and uh, Jackie takes issue with many of the things that, that you said. Um, and I, what we're going to do is have a few minutes of rebuttal from each of you, and then we're going to have questions from each of you and answers from each of you and questions from the audience. Jack, you can do it from your seat. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I, one view I share with uh, Judge Young is I also don't like sophistry. Um, and I've been hearing a phrase, several phrases, throughout the day, and I keep hearing it in all the discussion of Blakely. Uh, everyone says uh, Blakely was a Sixth Amendment jury trial case, the right to jury trial, everything jury trial. That's not what this case was about. Yeah, the courts talk about jury trial. Yes, the courts talk about Sixth Amendment. But this was a plea bargaining case. And I think that's important. Now, many of you may be familiar with the Yiddish sentencing word chutzpah, um, usually defined as extreme gall. I claim it as a sentencing word because the classic example defining the word is the child who murdered his, murders his parents and then seeks mercy from the court on the grounds that he's an orphan. After Blakely, I think we have a new definition of chutzpah. The dirty truth here is that Blakely talks about jury trials in the Sixth Amendment, but this is not a jury case. It's a plea bargaining case, as are, as, as the judge rightly notes, 97% odd of the cases that are out there today. We have mostly a, a plea bargaining system. Strip aside all the legal mumbo-jumbo and look at the procedural facts. Blakely was a case where the prosecutor and the defendant made a deal. They came to an agreement. The judge didn't like the deal. The judge threw the deal out. He violated the plea bargain, upping the defendant's sentence from four to seven years in what I would call a gross abuse of judicial discretion. The use of Blakely, therefore, of all cases, by judges, of all people, for the proposition that judges need less control on their discretion strikes me as chutzpah of the highest order. With regard to a couple of the other points uh, about the racial uh, disparities, this is simply fact. I'm not accusing Judge Young, of course, of racial discrimination, but it's there's study after study after study indicated that and that's why Senator Kennedy and Attorney General Meese could come to agreement this is wrong. The system needed to be changed. And in her dissent, Justice O'Connor quoted studies that proved once again, quote, this lesson is powerful, racial disparity is correlated with unstructured and unreviewed discretion. And when 
he had, his good friend uh, Justice Breyer, and this was the one who I who's quoted here as saying the length of a time a person spent in prison appeared to depend on what the judge ate for breakfast. I didn't come up with the phrase. It's here. And he knows. So um, the other issue, well, I'll get, I'll get to real offense separately. I'll, I'll take it. I, um, I think it's important for everyone to realize what we could go back to. So unreviewed, unstructured, unfettered discretion is a thing that can lead to all the horrors that we had before and we're already experiencing them now after the fallout from Blakely. And it's only going to get worse, hopefully, before it gets better. Thanks. All right. Great. Thank you. Um, I think we're just going to have to agree to disagree. Um, this was a 1993 study from, done by the Bureau of Justice Statistics. Uh, the name of the study was... U.S. Department, uh, sentencing in the federal courts does race matter, the transition to sentencing guidelines. The conclusion reached was only a few studies examined actual federal sentencing decisions prior to the introduction of the guidelines. Together they showed that guidelines, excuse me, that sentencing was not greatly dependent on the judge that one drew. Rather, out outcomes generally corresponded to differences in cases and offenders' characteristics that were commonly seen as legitimately considered. Differences clearly thought to be unwarranted, e.g., by the defendant's race or ethnicity, were found to be uniformly small or statistically insignificant. That's from, from the uh, Bureau of Justice Statistics, the, uh, the government themselves. Um, a couple of very quick points, somewhat random. Uh, we mentioned the word deterrence as being a rationale for the guidelines. Unfortunately, it's a one-way street deterrence. It is, we will punish you if you have committed certain past crimes. That we will factor in. But if you have done past good deeds, if you were, uh, oh, I don't know, you have had great employment history, family ties and responsibilities, public service, let's say you had, I don't know, three Purple Hearts and a Bronze Star, um, <laughs> that would be totally irrelevant under the federal sentencing. So it is, it, to talk about deterrence, it really is a system that only allows one-way street, one-way street uh, deterrence. Second concern, that mentioned the, the Bowman plan. And I, I agree, lift the lid, but I'm wondering why we can't open up the hatch as well. Uh, again, one way that the Department of Justice seems to be perfectly happy with putting the very top at the upper echelon of sentencing, but are quite concerned about uh, leaving the possibility for the low end as well. Um, connection between crime and guidelines. I'm of the opinion as an academic that that connection is spurious. Fluctuations in crime uh, levels depend much more on economics education, the amount of money that's put into the social system, and a lot less on the guideline structure or punishment in general. So I would, I would say that that probably is, is an inaccurate statement. The a fourth concern is that we're talking about the guidelines right now, but part and parcel of any type of change is going to have to be a redo on the federal criminal code itself. If any of you have tried to find the, the different criminal provisions, they are strewn throughout the U.S. Code. They are haphazard, and a lot of them make little sense. So if you wanted to do a redo on sentencing, I would suggest that it also would be an appropriate time to talk about substantive criminal law. I do agree with the judge about how important our jury system is uh, to the criminal justice system. And what I would suggest is that should be part of a larger package. We would want to make jury systems and the jurors themselves to be representative of actual citizens. Um, you know, the ongoing phrase is that jurors are composed of 
only those people who aren't smart enough to get off of them. And I find that to be very troubling. We have to think about how these individuals can be compensated, such that they don't lose their jobs when they serve on juries. And how, for example, to make jury instructions uh, more understandable. I read them to my first year criminal law students and to my second year criminal law students, criminal procedure students, and even by the third year, they have no idea what they mean. And I find that troubling when you have lay citizens making those type of decisions. And then finally, I was very pleased to hear the judge mention uh, the Emerson decision, which was the Second Amendment decision. And uh, I do think this is important. The Sixth Amendment is important. And sometimes certain quote-unquote civil liberties organizations pick and choose those rights that are important, those civil liberties that matter. Um, the First Amendment, religion, religious freedom. Many, again, quote-unquote civil liberties organizations ignore that. They ignored the Second Amendment right to bear arms, and they sure as heck avoid the Fifth Amendment takings clause. Uh, a true civil libertarian organization considers all civil liberties and doesn't pick and choose as to which one should be protected. With that? Keep it brief if you can, because we are running a little over. A point on disparities um, in, in response to the judge's observation. Um, I would sim simply observe this. Uh, while there might be disparities uh, in any particular instance because of wrongdoing by a particular judge, I think it's much more likely the case that the disparities that existed before the federal sentencing guidelines came into place uh, were not as a result of any wrongdoing by any particular judge, but rather the natural result of a national or federal system that lacked national or federal guidelines, precisely the kinds of, of disparities in outcomes that you would expect when one particular district has a particular approach uh, and, and is not uh, sensitive to, apprised of, aware of uh, the way things are proceeding in other districts. The result is that you would have similarly situated defendants uh, convicted of similar kinds of crimes who then in different districts would get markedly different sentences. It's not to assign culpability to any particular judge, it's simply to observe the natural outworking of, of such a, a national or federal system uh, absent um, guidance and guidelines. Perhaps I'll stop there. Judge. Uh, I, w I went last, so I really shouldn't uh, take any more time. And uh, I just as soon have people's questions, though I have more to say. Okay, well, very good. I'm sure some questions will be, be directed at you. We do want to take some questions from the audience. Uh, when you're recognized and you're going to ask a question, I would ask that uh, you wait until the microphone is brought over to you. Uh, before you answer, you identify who you are. Uh, that you please keep your question brief and respectfully request uh, no dissents, uh, no uh, uh, declarations or statements. I'm going to take the liberty as the moderator to ask the first question. I'd like to address it to Jack. Uh, I note that uh, in his Blakely decision, towards the end of the decision, Justice Scalia writes, uh, by reversing the judgment below, we are not, as the state would have it, finding determinate sentencing schemes unconstitutional. Several policies prompted Washington's adoption of determinate sentencing, including proportionality to the gravity of the offense and parity among defendants. Nothing we have said impugns those salutary objectives. I'm just wondering, as, as uh, uh, Judge Young had said, is there not a compromise that's possible here where judges can consider these aggravating circumstances? Why wouldn't that work? I think there are a lot of compromises that are possible, obviously, and uh, certainly with brilliant legal minds at work, a, a lot of different possibilities could exist. 
Uh, but I think it is, it's a bit disingenuous to, to look at that opinion in terms of what it actually uh, says and the number of state jurisdictions that it actually affects uh, to say that it's, it's really not, not doing very much, that it really doesn't have that much effect. The big difference is that in the non-guidelines jurisdictions, we don't know what informs a sentencing decision. If we take out the guidelines, we won't know in the current guidelines jurisdictions what informs those decisions, which therefore will make it impossible for either defense or prosecution to appeal, for a common law of sentencing to develop, to answer the questions on the 103 different issues that we've spoken of over the years, whether or not the real offense sentencing is proper, whether or not it is proper to take into account whether or not someone's won medals or not, whether or not it's proper to take into account if someone is employed or some, some such. But I think we need to know why, what effect that actually has. Guidelines gives us not only the language uh, to tell us what that will be, but the numbers. Yes. Jack, you could have all of that if you made the federal sentencing procedures today genuine guidelines, made them precatory. That's a solution as well. Okay, over here, sir. I'm Pat Nolan of Justice Fellowship. And a uh, question for Mr. Kress and any of the others that uh, might want it. These guidelines, of course, affect real people. And uh, one case of which I'm aware, a very successful businessman was in a business dispute charged with seven counts of fraud and one count of conspiracy to commit fraud. He was acquitted of all the accounts of fraud, 12 zip for acquittal on uh, the fraud counts. He was convicted of conspiracy to commit fraud. And in interviews with the jurors later said the discussion in the jury room was, gee, this young man, the AUSA, had put in so much work, the government must have had something to go on, they needed to give him something at the end. So they gave him the conspiracy. The judge convicted him on the basis of the counts of fraud for which, or sentenced him on the basis of the counts of fraud for which he was convicted. And this 77-year-old man went to prison for nine years as a result of that. Was that outcome contemplated by you in the guidelines that the sentencing could include counts that the jury had acquitted the man of? First question. The second is, and whether or not you contemplated it, is that just? Uh, now I'll do what Judge Young says only someone terrible would do, quote himself again. Uh, I devoted uh, many pages of, of the book that I've been referring to, to this, this thing called real offense sentencing, because it's a fact of life in the judicial system. And because no one knew before what it was about, and no one could calculate what it was about. And if the judge simply says, I took all of that into account, which is what they all said before, nobody in an appeals court could ever review it and say it was right or wrong. What I've argued for is that guidelines put uh, actual numbers on that. We will know exactly what was taken into account in terms of the real offense, real offense in quotation marks. It can go up for appeal, it can be reviewed, and an appellate court can say that's right or wrong. So far, actually, the Supreme Court has said that's okay, what you've asked me. 
But it could be that looking, but they've said it in the context of that's what judges generally consider. My intent was to make it open for review. Uh, a signal advantage, quoting myself, of a sentencing guideline system will be the systemic honesty it will foster. The implementation of guidelines will necessitate that real offense sentencing be made far more explicit than it has been in the past. Previously, all a judge would say is, I took all of that into account. They would not tell you I took X into account, and X means an extra year. Now you know X means an extra year, and that can be appealed in a good guideline system. Yeah, I, you can, if I could just add one, one thing really quickly. It seems to me when a jury says not guilty, that should be the end of it, and it should not be allowed to be utilized in any way, shape, or form. Uh, they, as, as the good judge said, they, are, they stand as the one uh, obstacle between prison and someone who's charged with a crime. And when they say not guilty, I think that should matter as a matter of constitutional law and as a matter of policy. Jack, do you take issue with it? No, I don't take issue with that. What I take issue with is trying to keep that away from the appellate courts to make a decision about. Mm -hmm. I would rather not have my view or Professor Luna's view predominate there. I would rather this came up knowledgeably, knowingly, to the appellate court for the appellate court to make a decision and a common law of sentencing to be developed to answer that question the way we do it in our system. Question back there in the back. Yes, Paul Cameron with the Washington Legal Foundation. Our foundation gets involved in some of these cases, and our most recent one is representing uh, seafood importers who had the misfortune of importing lobster tails that were packed in clear, transparent plastic bags rather than cardboard boxes that are now serving 97 months under the guidelines, first offender in a fe uh, federal uh, prison. Uh, in terms of the disparity issue, I mean, those are the draconian examples, and I've got thousands of those, as everybody else does. But in terms of the disparity, if, if the guidelines were to, to reduce disparity, um, I'd submit that we uh, have the problem of, of uh, the good intentions gone wrong, where the guidelines are actually producing wild disparities. And I think the perfect example of that is a case out of the District Court of Massachusetts, which Judge uh, Young referred to in his opinion, and that's U.S. versus Thurston, which is pending before the Supreme Court in cert right now. I'm afraid it's going to be overshadowed by the Blakely case. And that's how does the Justice Department and the guidelines uh, who support the guidelines justify a sentence where you have two ex executives charged with one count of conspiracy for Medicare fraud. The pr prosecution says to the one guy, you can plead no contendery, you don't have to cooperate, and we're okay with a probationary sentence. The second defendant who says, I didn't do this, I'm not guilty, I'm going to exercise my Sixth Amendment right to trial, goes to trial, gets convicted, the judge says, look, you, uh, 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 the guidelines call for 78 to 97 months, the Justice Department wants that, I'll give you three months in prison, I'll give you more than what your co-defendant was fine with. The Justice Department said, no, you have to impose a wild disparate sentence, appealed it to the First Circuit under the Feeney Amendment, the PROTECT Act, the First Circuit says, well, the guidelines are fine, 78 to 97 months, but lo and behold, one count of conspiracy is 60 months, so here you had some irrational guidelines that mandated a greater than the statutory maximum, and, and, and the First Circuit said, no, 60 months is the sentence that you get for going to trial. Damn. On remand, the district judge says, I'm not having any part of this. Like Judge Young, he recused himself from the case. Cert petition, the Justice Department 
uh, is, uh, did not even respond to the uh, cert petition. Uh, apparently, they're happy with this uh, kind of wild disparity. I'd like uh, comments okay. on that. Okay. Dan. Um, I don't know the particulars in, in the case, the cases to which you refer. Um, so I'm not in a position to speak specifically to them. I'd be pleased to uh, confer with you afterwards and find out more and try to be responsive in terms of the department not having. Thank you. Um, I, with respect to the larger question of disparity, uh, I would simply indicate that, uh, respectfully, uh, the, the data uh, would indicate that disparities have been substantially reduced after the promulgation of the, of the federal sentencing guidelines. So that the, the question of, of increased disparity post-guidelines is not borne out by the sentencing evidence. Uh, it's not to say that there aren't particular cases that, uh, that, that raise questions, but it's to say as a general matter, the federal uh, system uh, is, is now characterized by reduced disparities uh, since the promulgation of the federal sentencing guidelines. We are running out of time, and I saw your hand's been up for some time. If you want to take the last question, we will have plenty of time for questions and answers, hopefully. Um, certainly questions upstairs uh, for lunch. I'm Professor William Chambliss from George Washington University. On the question of disparity, there are two issues. One is the racial issue, and there's no evidence that there's been less racial disparity than there, is, than there was before. And indeed, what disparity there has been reduced has been reduced from judges and transferred to prosecutors. With respect to disparity for sentences for the same of, with respect to disparity for sentences, for non, on a non-racial basis, there's good reason to want there to be disparity between a woman who's been abused for 30 years by her husband and kills him, and a man who goes out and kills his wife because he finds she was infidel. Those are very different cases, and the judge should certainly have the discretion to make that decision. With respect to the guidelines and the crime rate, the crime rate in the United States began declining in 1973 and has continued to today. It did not start declining in 1987 after the guidelines were passed. And I just have one question. Will the Blakely case have implications for three strikes and you're out? I, I really can't address that. I think it's a wonderful question. Uh, I cite you to a manuscript. She's going to get it published. Uh, I have a copy of it, but I want to call your attention to a manuscript by Professor Jacqueline Gardena of the Vermont Law School. And her point is that post-Blakely, and she, she makes a point, and you can see I borrowed from her, that the jury has this structural role, and the jury has a structural role with respect to mandatory minimums other than those which are based on a prior convictions or pleas. Uh, when that comes out, and, and you can contact her at Vermont Law School, I think uh, she'd be worth talking to. I, I think even Justice Scalia said that prior convictions don't have to be proved to a jury, so three strikes and you're out would seem to be still. Um, I, I'd like to thank the panel uh, so much for their participation here. Um, but also, one other note of appreciation. Uh, none of us here works for Cato. I'd also like to thank Cato for having this, sponsoring this debate on an issue of extraordinary public significance, legal significance, uh, to, to elevate the debate and air out the issues I think is useful to all. And I'm delighted to be here and participate. Thank you. Lunch upstairs.